to me was also a, a testament that two insurgents that blew themselves up, they weren't going to be the ones that determined when I had to get out of the army. I was going to be the one that was going to make that decision in my own time. And so to me, it was my way of telling those two guys that they didn't accomplish their purpose. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. I'm your host, Dr. Doug Soderdahl, retired Army urologist, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Wayne Causey, active duty vascular surgeon. On this episode, we are privileged to welcome Major General Daniel Walrath to War Docs. General Walrath is originally from Pensacola, Florida, and was commissioned as an infantry lieutenant following graduation from West Point. During his career, he has held multiple leadership positions and most recently was the commander of U.S. Army South. He is a ranger, master parachutist, and pathfinder, and wears the Combat Infantryman's Badge, Expert Infantryman's Badge, and the Air Assault Wings. While commanding the 2nd Brigade Combat Team of the 101st Airborne Division, his unit encountered a suicide bomber in Afghanistan, where General Walrath suffered a severe injury to his lower extremity, requiring urgent treatment and evacuation from the theater. He describes his experiences with the military healthcare system. Find out more about his career at wardocspodcast.com. On this episode of War Docs, we're privileged to welcome Major General Daniel Walrath, recent commander of U.S. Army South and soon to be an Army retiree. Sir, thanks for joining us. I'm glad to be here, Doug. Thank you. So not many individuals have the unique perspective of encountering the military health system, both as a senior Army leader and a soldier wounded in battle. But our guest today is one of those individuals. Now, before we get into your experiences, tell us a little about what led you to join the military and why did you stay in for so long? I grew up in a Navy family in Pensacola, Florida. So I just kind of naturally wanted to join the military from as early as the fourth grade, if you can believe that. And I just had a dream of being a naval aviator up until the point where the Navy wouldn't take me. Turns out I couldn't pass the hearing tests for admission to uh, the Naval Academy. So I ended up in the military academy. And then when I realized the Army aviation had the same hearing tests as naval aviation that I still couldn't pass, and then I ended up in the infantry. and wouldn't change a thing since. So fast forward to Afghanistan in August of 2012. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on with you and your unit before your injury and then what happened afterwards? I'll go big picture to small. And, and so I was in command of 2nd Brigade 101st. We had deployed to Afghanistan in April of that year, 2012. For me, that was my fourth time to Afghanistan. My unit was organized into a series of uh, advisor teams, and we were working in uh, the Nangahar, Kunar, uh, Logman, Kapisa region of Afghanistan, sort of the New England area of Afghanistan. And, and we were working hand in hand with 4th Brigade of the 4th ID, commanded at the time by a good friend of mine, uh, Jim Mingus. And his unit was the what we call the battle space owner. So just prior to the attack, my brigade and Colonel Mingus's brigade with our Afghan counterparts had conducted a, a two-day conference at forward operating base Fenty outside the, the city of Jalalabad in Nangahar, we had conducted a two-day conference where we had coordinated U.S.-Afghan combined operations for the course of the next 120 days. And that conference had just concluded. And so on the morning of the 8th, I and a couple of my commanders, as well as Colonel Mingus, were set to fly from the air base, from the FOB, about 20 minutes north to uh, Asadabad. It's the provincial capital of Kunar. And we were going to attend 
a, uh, a provincial security meeting, kind of a, I won't say a routine, but it's a, it's a meeting that I had been to before. So we were on our way to go to this meeting when, when the attack occurred. So lead us right up to the, the minutes before the attack and, and, and what exactly happened. Okay. Like I said, this is a meeting or a route that I've been on before, but we flew into Asadabad and then once we landed, it was about a, oh, a half mile, three quarters of a mile, fairly short, 20 minute walk or patrol, dismounted patrol movement that we had to make from where we got off the helicopter to this compound where the where the meeting would be held. Just prior to entering the compound, the compound was surrounded by a uh, canal, almost like a moat, if you will. And to, to get over this canal was a was a small footbridge, so you know somewhat of a choke point. And so, just on the near side of this footbridge was a small little building. It wouldn't mean a building; it's more like a almost like a toll a toll booth structure, uh, very small, but right on the near side. And unbeknownst to us, there were two attackers that were hidden behind this this structure. Both of them wearing uh, explosive vests with ball bearings, and so you know they would have known we were coming because they would have seen and heard the helicopter landing. And so as we, as the patrol approached this footbridge and began to cross, they just, they stepped out from the, from behind this hiding place, walked a few steps, and they were then in the midst of, of the patrol. And the first guy, the first attacker detonated, uh, detonated his vest. Second guy, we found out after the fact that remained behind the structure and he was going to come out later, you know, to target the first responders. First guy stepped out made a few steps into the middle of the patrol and then detonated his uh, vest. Unfortunately, it uh, you know killed, killed four Americans right away and wounded several others, um, myself included. So. Now, when that happened, what was the extent of, of your injury and what were you thinking at the time? So as far as what I was thinking, it was very surreal. It's, it's hard. It's almost like the last several seconds happened in slow motion. It's almost like you see in the movies where out of the peripheral vision of my left eye, I kind of caught sight of this guy. He was unusual because he was so close. He had a very set look on his face and he had a very set purposeful movement, like he was going somewhere. I caught sight of him and I looked at him and I thought to myself, you know, oh my gosh, this guy looks like a suicide. And, and right as I was thinking, you know, bomber, then then boom, the explosion went off. And again, so it was just very surreal and it almost, almost happened in slow motion. And so now I'm in a, my vision and view goes from, you know, whatever I could see to, to zero, because now I'm in the middle of a just a huge cloud of dust. Can't really see anything other than myself enveloped by a cloud of dust. And I'm just thinking to myself, well, I just can't believe this just happened. You know, am, am, am I really here? So I looked at my hand and my, my index finger was bent 90 degrees. It was going this way at the knuckles and there was no pain, thankfully, but I looked at my hand saying, well, I, I think that's my hand, but it doesn't, it doesn't look like my hand. You know, that doesn't look right. I felt a pain, a sharp pain in my left leg. It wasn't excruciating, but but I knew that I had been hit in some manner. I, I had no idea. I couldn't see my leg. I had been blown to the ground and I could feel the pain. So I knew I'd been wounded in some fashion, but I really didn't know if bad it was. I didn't know if my if I had lost my leg. I couldn't tell. What was going on with a second attacker? I only experienced and realized the first explosion. What we found out, and this was well after the fact, what ended up happening is that second attacker, thankfully, the first explosion sympathetically detonated the explosives that was being worn by the second guy. So he he literally detonated in place in his hiding place, really with almost no effect to the patrol because the, the building that he was hiding behind ended up absorbing you know most of his blast. So he he died. 
without accomplishing his purpose, thankfully. You're sitting there and you're trying to, you're seeing that you've been injured and you're trying to figure out what's going on around you. How did the first people get administered aid? Yeah, so not knowing what was going to happen, I, I ended up crawling. I'm not even sure how I knew it was there, but there was, a, again, this is a, a footbridge. There was a small stairwell, if you will, that descended through the roadway down down below, you know, going down to the canal. I somehow made my way to that stairwell and climbed into it for some cover again, not knowing what was coming next. But when I went into it, I went into it head first. You know, now I'm upside down in this stairwell. And then another guy comes in on top of me. Turned out he was a, a civilian worker from the Department of State. So he's now landed on top of me. I'm upside down. Got all, I still got my kit on. And then another guy comes in on top of me. So we'll just jumble in here together. It's a real quick, you know, hey, nice to meet you. How you doing? You okay? I think I'm I think my legs hurt and you helped me with my tourniquet. So I at least had enough sense to, you know, grab my tourniquet. I didn't know how bad my leg was, but I just knew I, I probably needed to get a tourniquet on it. The the whole aid thing starts with, you know, what, what we're always taught as soldiers, you know, self-aid buddy aid. So here it is right here, right? I'm trying to put my tourniquet on and I've and I got my new buddy from the Department of State. It's going to help me do that right. And initially, I was thinking to myself, man, I'm I'm screwed because this guy's a civilian from the Department of State. He probably doesn't know what a tourniquet is, or at least of all, you know, how to put it on. But then in the course of our, you know, introductory conversation, he's like, oh, yeah, and I used to be in the Marines. And I'm like, oh, wow, thanks. Now, now I'm feeling a lot better about the situation because I figured he probably had some, some basic medical training as well. So together, I pull my tourniquet out and he helps me. In, in a matter of minutes, you know, he helps me get this thing onto my leg. So, you know, self-aid buddy aid, I end up with a with a tourniquet on my thigh. And I think based on what I learned later, that was probably pretty critical to not bleeding out. And did you get a chance to look down at your leg while this was being put on and no, have any again, idea? Again, because I'm, I'm upside down and guy on top of me, I really never really got, a, you know, had a good view of my leg or if, again, if it was even still. Um, yeah. And were there any medical people in, in this patrol or, or with your the folks that were there? There were. And then, you know, what seemed like a very short time after you know, a matter of seconds or minutes after I had this tourniquet on, then a little aid party came and they found us. This, this is a, a medic and turns out to be one of my battalion commanders who is on the patrol as well. So this is, they found you know me and, and this Department of State gentleman in the stairwell here, they pulled us out. And so now, now I've got a, a, you know, an actual medic starting to give me aid and my battalion commander's there talking to me, asking me how I'm doing. I'm, I'm asking, I'm obviously, I'm concerned about him asking how he's doing. I was concerned about the other brigade commander asked how he was doing. I mean, not only were we fellow brigade commanders, but you know, he and I had known each other since we had served in the same unit together during 9-11. We'd known each other for you know, the last 13 years. And so that was that battalion commander that kind of gave me the initial unfortunate news of some of the soldiers that had not made it. So this this medic is, is treating me and my, my battalion commander is now being treated by a medic and, and my battalion commander and, and others are, are now putting me into a litter in a matter of minutes. I'm now being drugged in, in one of these uh, SCEDCO litters to a vehicle. Now somewhere from somewhere, some vehicles have showed up. You know, our litters are being drugged into these into these armored vehicles. And so and then these vehicles close up and, and, and we go down the road and the commander was still with me. Joe Power was his name. He said, yeah, we're going to we're going to Fob Wright, which was about a, a very short distance. About It ended up being about a 10 minute ride down to the south where there was a forward surgical team. So at, at the end of this ride, you feel the vehicle stop and door, the, the ramp comes down and a bunch of people rush in. And, and, you know, now I'm being carted out of the vehicle 
and then I get put onto a litter and and uh, and then put onto a table. And, and so now I'm at the forward surgical team and uh, you know undergoing treatment by triage and you know by the whole team. And what I remember is that it, it must have been eight or nine or ten people that just swarmed on top of me. And you get people cutting my gear off, cutting my clothes off, sticking needles in me, asking me questions, shining lights in my eyes. And so. <laughs> And, and so it was a lot of attention, right? It, somewhere in that process, you know, somebody put narcotics into me and then I eventually go out, not that I lose consciousness, whatever, I, I go out and I, I'm out. I know what happened in the, in the next 72 hours because I've kind of pieced it together over the course of the last nine years, uh, but I, I don't have any direct memory from that point forward. I also had a battalion commander that stayed, a different one, stayed with me uh, throughout my, my evacuation in Afghanistan. And so he, he was instrumental in kind of helping me kind of fill in the missing pieces. But it's, I've been able to assemble what happened over the last nine years, but not from any direct memory. Now, going back to the, the point of injury, is that a scenario that ever went through your mind prior to that, that you were a commander, you're going into a, a place on a patrol and something happens and you're the one that winds up on the stretcher? We'd always triumph for different scenarios uh, where patrols are attacked by various means. I, I can't say that I'd ever been in a training exercise, you know, where I've been the one that would, you know, designate as the casualty, but that that's the way this one happens. So tell us about the 72 hours. You said you were filled in on it. I underwent a, an initial surgery at that FST. By my understanding of the of the post-op notes, I mean, there was, I had a lot of bleeding so the wound to my leg was, I, I, I had a lot of soft tissue damage to my left leg below the knee. I had a, I had a bunch of ball bearings and fragmentation wounds elsewhere, but really the, the primary wound was soft tissue damage to my left leg. And it really had shredded most of my arteries running below the knee. And so I had a lot of bleeding. And so the initial surgery was, was attempt, an attempt to just stabilize that bleeding. And then they called in a, a medevac Blackhawk to come in and pick me up. They did. And then they were going to fly me to Bagram en route. So I learned later, you know, that that Black Hawk was flown by Major Jared Bernaldson and the guy in the back taking care of me, U.S. Army Flight Medic Staff Sergeant Troy Halfhill. So he's he's monitoring me in the back, and then he he realizes that my blood pressure is dropping, that I'm bleeding out. Whatever they had done to my leg, it it didn't stick, and so I'm starting to bleed, and and he sees my blood pressure dropping. And he basically tells the pilots, yeah, I'm not going to, he's not going to survive. You know, Bagram from that point is about a 60 minute flight. And they, he tells the pilots, hey, he's not going to survive the flight. So you need to divert to another FST. And so that action by Sergeant Halfhill saved my life. And so that's what the pilots did, because that's, that's the way it works is the pilots take commands, if you will, from the medic in the back. He's the one giving direction on where they need to go based on the status of the patients. So the the flight diverts to you know back to Fenty, where I'd taken off from earlier in the morning, where there, there's another FST there, 274th FST specifically. So I land there and I go back into surgery with the 274th for surgical team. Dr. Will Rice was the lead surgeon. Rob Lim was was his assistant. A guy named uh, William Jordan, and then uh, Zach Kufal was the was the lead nurse. So this team of four kind of converges on me and gets back into my leg to stabilize. The bleeding and so i had multiple veins that where i was bleeding from and they very methodically got the bleeding under control thankfully and again had again saved my life and so to put things in perspective you know i was able to review the the post-op note that dr rice wrote a couple of years later the doctors explained it to me and, and so what caught my eye was at the bottom it said ebl 
And I said, what does this acronym EBL mean? And oh, by the way, there's this word massive next to it. And so they explained to me, well, EBL is estimated blood loss. And I go, oh, so that, that doesn't sound very good if, again, if the word massive is next to it in four to five liters. And so that put things into perspective for me on just exactly what my <laughs> what my condition was at, at the time. And you know, that was four to five liters at the FST, not accounting for what I probably lost in the medevac flight under Sergeant Hatfield's care and what I'd lost at the first FST. So I go back to the importance of getting that tourniquet on is, you know, when I did, it was probably pretty important. But despite all that, uh, these these incredible surgeons at the 274th got the bleeding under control and were able to stabilize me to then allow me to make another flight and, and to now make the flight, survive the flight to Bagram to the combat support hospital there, the Rule 3, uh, the main, is, for those that haven't been, the, you know, the main Rule 3 uh, hospital in, in uh, Afghanistan. Now, during this time, does your family know what's going on? They do. And so incredibly thankful. So another of one of my battalion commanders, a guy named Sean Williams, is the one who made the call. I don't know exactly what point he made that call, you know, relative to where I was. To me, that was, and to my wife, that was incredibly important that the call came from him because there's someone that my, that my wife knew, you know, versus getting a call from an anonymous person. She got a call from somebody that she knew very well. You know, one of my battalion commanders, he provided very difficult, life-altering news, but he did it with a great sense of compassion and caring. Incredibly thankful to him for being the one to make the call. But it was a, like I said, it was a life-altering phone call from my wife. And, and so, you know, that, that started her on a journey to, to get to Walter Reed. In a matter of hours, she packed a suitcase that was ended up lasting her for the next three and a half months as she went to to launch tour to be there when I came in. So you've made it through the medevac chain of evacuation to Roll 3 and Bagram. Tell us about the events that occurred then. When I got to Bagram, I don't know if it's the right medical term, but the, the arteries in my leg, I, I learned now that you have three arteries that run down your leg below the knee, and all three of mine have been shredded for, for you know in layman's terms. So I underwent a, an arterial graft by who I know now. I've not, I've not had the chance to meet him, but we've talked to U.S. Air Force Colonel Michael Hogan, is the, the vascular surgeon uh, that, that did this surgery. I was lucky enough to have a, a you know, there just happened to be a vascular surgeon there when I came in and he did this uh, this vascular graft. Uh, it was about a nine hour surgery and it, uh, it restored the blood flow because you know, I, I didn't have a distal pulse. I didn't have, a, it wasn't getting a, a regular pulse in my foot. And so starting half hill and the doctors at the 274th, you know, saved my life. Dr. Hogan, you know, with this vascular graft saved my leg basically with, uh, you know, by, by restoring blood flow. As an aside, just to give you an idea of, of the quality of work that he did, a year later, I do a, an annual vascular scan just to kind of check the, the integrity of the graft. The first time I did that, I had to go to Vanderbilt because the hospital at Fort Campbell didn't, didn't have a, a vascular doctor to do it. So I went to the, the Vanderbilt Hospital. So a non-military treatment facility. I ended up being seen by the director of the department. He was utterly amazed at the quality of the dra of the graft, so much so that they had difficulty identifying the specific location of the graft with the, with the ultrasound scan. And so he, he asked me, hey, by the way, where, where did you have this surgery done? And I told him, uh, I told him Bagram. And he goes, Bagram, where's that? I go, oh, that's in Afghanistan. And, and he was utterly amazed, not just at the quality, that the quality of the graft that he was looking at had been done in a combat surgical hospital in the middle of nowhere in Afghanistan. Just a testament to incredible work by Dr. Hogan. 
Now, when you started waking up and amnesia part is over 72 hours, are you at launch stool yet or are you still in Bagram? So I was at launch stool. So I ended up having two surgeries at Bagram. Um, so I had six surgeries total uh, between the FSTs and Bagram. And, and then and then I was evacuated, still unconscious. I was then I was then evacuated at launch tool. So at launch tool, yes, to answer your question, is, is where I was debated. And that's where I had my, my next coherent memory after going under at the uh, original FST. And by this time, as I mentioned earlier, my, my wife had made it. How she did that is a story in and of itself, but she, she made it to launch tool. And uh, when, when I opened my eyes, she was, she was there to hold my hand. What was your impression of the care that you got at launch tool? It was, it was good care. I, I don't remember too much. I was awake, but I don't remember too much about it. Very groggy, still in a lot of pain. I went through two more surgeries, kind of exploratory or washout surgeries uh, there at launch tool. So I was only there about 18 hours, and then I was stable enough. So, you know, then, then I was further evacuated, a medical evacuation C-17, and, and my wife, Christine, was able to go along with me. So we went together to Andrews Air Force Base. So you've now made it from roll four, moving to roll five at Walter Reed back in the United States. Tell us about your experience when you got to Walter Reed. So I can tell you now that I, you know, I ended up being at Walter Reed for right at three months. I got there in the middle of August, discharged on the, on the 10th of November. So I was there right at three months, went through 24 more surgical procedures, and I didn't have to amputate my leg. I know all that now. Didn't, I didn't know any of that on the 12th of August when I arrived. And so that was the biggest thing I remember is that, you know, at the beginning, everything was just characterized. It was a lot of pain because you know, I was going in and out of surgeries. It, it seemed like every every other day and and just a lot of unknown and uncertainty. I didn't know how long I was going to be there. I didn't know if I was going to be able to keep my leg or not. They, they came in and told me the vascular, everyone had done such a great job on my vascular problems that I, that really was not, the major concern, what ended up becoming the primary challenge was infection. And so every time they kept, every time they would go in to my leg, they would they would encounter more infection, and they just had to keep cutting and cutting and cutting and debriding every time they were going in. But that's what I remember. Is just I just didn't know. I didn't know am I going to have to do another operation tomorrow or the day after tomorrow? Is is there still going to be infection? Are they going to have to cut my leg off? And then just how long am I going to be here? I had the great benefit of meeting, of having numerous soldiers from 2nd Brigade 101st come to visit me. But these were, for context, these were soldiers who were still outpatient at Walter Reed from the brigade's previous deployment in 2010 under, the, under my predecessor. So they'd been in the hospital as wounded warriors for 15, some going on 18 months. And so it was great to see them. They motivated me. They inspired me. But, uh, but they also left questions, and I'm like, wow, these guys are here. You know, I'm feeling sorry for myself. I, I haven't even been here a week, and I'm feeling sorry for myself. These guys are going on month 18. And so it was inspirational. It, it, it made me quit feeling sorry for myself. But, but it also made me wonder, okay, what, what am I in for? So just a lot of unknown and uncertainty, very, very challenging to, to deal with amidst all of, all of the things going on with you, you know, with me medically. Was there any point? At Walter Reed, where the doctors asked you and, and your family to make a decision of whether or not you would consider an amputation versus limb salvage? So, no. However, I, I will say one thing I do remember from launch tool, and my wife remembers it clearly as well, is there was certainly a bias towards amputation. And so no one ever asked me to make that decision, but 
when the doctors were coming out and speaking to me and my wife at launch tour, they were like, hey, he's gonna do, he's gonna be okay. And as an amputee, he'll have plenty of opportunities. You know, prosthetics are so advanced now that he'll have plenty of opportunity to return to a full and active life as an amputee. So the bias was certainly in that direction, but I, I never had someone ask me that question or decision point blank. One of those soldiers that I told you about that was, you know, came to visit, one of them was a, might've been a single or a double leg amputee. And I remember, and I, and I forget his name, unfortunately, but I, I remember what he told me. And he said, hey, sir, nothing, nothing beats the real thing. And so that stuck with me. And so after that soldier told me that, you know, the next time, the next time I had a, an engagement with my doctors, I told him, I, I told him, I, I'm not interested in amputation and I want you to save my leg. And so to their credit, that's what they did. And so that's part of the reason that it was never a point of discussion after that. It was mid-October before the doctors were finally able to come in during one of their post-op visits and say, we, we didn't see any infection. We think your leg will be viable. So it was, it was a two-month period there of, uh, again, every second day, every third day, a, a washout surgery, debris, more infected flesh in two months of that process being repeated before they were able to give me that positive news. So during your rehabilitation, you were at the Center for the Intrepid. Tell us about that experiences, some struggles you had. Was it difficult? And how did that impact you thereafter? So to make the connection from, from Walter Reed to to CFI. So once I found out the news, you know, my leg would be viable. The rest of the sentence from the doctors was, but we don't know how you're going to walk because we, we've had to cut out and debride so much flesh that most of your muscle and all of your nerves are gone. And, and so I didn't have any sensation. Every you know nerve conduction test they did for me would come back negative and all zeros. And, and so that was my end state. You know, zero function again. I'm, you know, in fact, paralyzed below the knee. That was the open question. I can keep my leg. That's great. But how am I going to function? How am I going to walk? And so that was now the big unknown. And so there, the you know, one of the game changers was I had another visit by General Conville brought in a guy named Sergeant Santos. Uh, he was from the 101st, and he came in, and uh, he was a left leg amputee, and on right leg he was a limb salvage, and he was wearing this high speed device called the IDEO, the Intrepid Dynamic exoskeletal orthosis. And uh, he just, he said, hey, sir, he goes, this is what I got. You need to get yourself one of these. And I said, okay, sounds like good advice from someone who knows what he's talking about. And so that planted the seed for hopefully, you know, a possible answer to this question of, okay, how am I going to function with this paralyzed leg, right? And, and so that led myself and my wife on a journey to kind of learn about what, what is an idea? What does it mean? Is it applicable to me? Where do I get it from? And so over the course of the next four or five months, going back to, to Fort Campbell, my physical therapist there who took charge of my rehabilitation at Campbell, a guy named Brian Jovag, he was the, the chief physical therapist at, uh, at Blanchfield. He got me connected and referred to Center for the Intrepid. Fast forward a couple months, February of 2013, after doing a little bit of rehabilitation to, at Blanchfield, I then make my way with my family uh, down to Center for the Intrepid. And I meet, refer to him as a genius incarnate. Ryan Blank is the prosthetist, and Johnny Owens was the lead trainer, CFI at the time. So these two guys, really the whole CFI, but, but these two were the two of the lead guys in this overall program, had, had, had developed this device, the IDEO, specifically to address you know, what they saw happening over hundreds of limb salvage patients was these, these guys and gals coming in and they've been able to salvage their limb, but 
because they the only way for them to return to a high level of function was to electively amputate to get a prosthetic. And they just thought to themselves, well, that's crazy. It, you know, we're able to, to medically salvage someone's limb, but then they're turning around and choosing to electively cut it off because that's the only option they have to turn to a level of activity and function. There should be another option where someone doesn't have to go through that elective amputation. And that was the genesis for developing this exoskeleton, this external prosthetic, if you will. And so that's what I went down. I got fitted for. And again, Ryan Blank was the, the, the lead prosthetist. He was a prosthetist out of the University of Washington. He had been in private practice and then for somehow, I don't know exactly how, but he came down to CFI and served there. That was, that was his service. That was his wartime service. Was he came down and worked there for five years before he ultimately uh, returned back home to, to Washington. And Johnny Owens was the guy that once I got this device, me and a bunch of others, then you had to learn how to use it, right? You had to, you had to learn you know, how to ambulate, how to walk, how to run. It was called this return to run program. We went through this you know, every day, you know, different levels of activity to, to learn how to, to walk, to run, to jump, to climb. But at the end of that, at the end of that program, middle of April, you know, it's now middle of April, 2013, I was at least able to get around, whereas four, I could. So it was, and again, it tied all that back to Sergeant Santos when he gave me the advice of, hey, sir, you need to get one of these. By this time, you've been in the military for over 20 years. What kind of conversations were you having with your family about what were your career options? What were you thinking about? You know, are you going to stay in the Army? What, what, yeah. what was going to happen next? First of all, I've been, I had been very fortunate that I had um, you know, the Army leadership, you know, my division commander, General McConville and the chief of the staff, General Odierno at the time, made the decision, as well as General Mayville, he was the two-star commander over in Afghanistan. They made the decision that they didn't need to pull me out of command and replace me. And I credit that to the leadership, you know, all of, them, all of my subordinate leaders, my, my Italian commanders, they had established enough trust and confidence that they could finish the mission without bringing a brand new 06 commander in. Because of that confidence that all of my leaders engendered that incentivized or motivated or, or allowed these senior leaders to say, hey, these, these uh, subordinate leaders in 2nd Brigade 101st have got the mission. They can continue it successfully uh, without having to you know, replace Walrath in command. So that was the first kind of piece that I'm incredibly fortunate and grateful for that I was able to just remain in command. But then once I, I did change command, my immediate goal objective, if you will, was I wanted to go do one more assignment. And I wanted to do it, if nothing else, to prove to myself that I could do it. To me, it was also a, a testament that two insurgents that blew themselves up, they weren't going to be the ones that determined when I had to get out of the Army. I was going to be the one that was going to make that decision in my own time. So to me, it was my way of telling those two guys that they didn't accomplish their purpose and, 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 and that I was, they were the losers and I was the winner in that fight. It was my purpose, if you will. So I was able to do, I, again, I had some I had good people looking out for me and I was able to go out to, to Fort Lewis, 7th Infantry Division and work for a, a guy named Steve Lanza. Incredibly grateful for him to bring me out and to, and to work for him as his division chief of staff. And I, I did that job two years. Frankly, at that point, I was, uh, my wife and I had, had conversations that I, like, okay, I, I, I did what I wanted to do. I wanted to do one more assignment. I've done that. I've done it successfully. I'm, I'm now ready to kind of exit the service, you know, not now in my timeline. And, and that's the direction that we were going. And then I got the news that I'd been selected for promotion. And so again, very grateful and very humbled for that unexpected, uh, good news, but that, that then, uh, that was 2015. 
that put me on a path for you know what ended up being another six plus years of service as a general officer. So after you went through the rehabilitation process and you had your Adeo brace, what was your physical fitness at that point? Were you able to do activities such as the Army physical fitness test? How did that go? That's definitely been a journey. I'm continually getting stronger. I mean, one of the things that people will ask me is, hey, where's the battery pack on that device? And I have to remind them, like, hey, man, there's, there's no battery pack. There's, you know, this thing is 100% powered by muscle. And so, you know, I've got one and a half legs to do what everyone else does with two legs. So I spend a lot of time doing squats and deadlifts. I've always been, as an infantryman, I was always focused on fitness. And it's become even more of a passion over the last eight years. And I've had the benefit of being around some, some very, very knowledgeable, very smart strength and conditioning coaches and trainers. And I try and learn everything I can from all these different people that I've had the benefit of being around. And I'm continually trying to, you know, learn in different ways to adapt. I have to adapt how I do some certain lifts and exercises because my, my ankle, I have no flexion in my ankle. I've got to adapt how I do certain things. So learning techniques to learning, you know, what's the, what's the best way to program strength training over over a period of time, right? To accomplish certain certain goals and objectives. So that's been a journey over time. And so it's what it's allowed me to do though, is as you said, I mean, I've been able to pass the APFT uh, uh, January this year. I passed the new, the Army's new combat fitness test to include maximum score of 340 pounds on the three rep maximum deadlift event. My motivation to pass the APFT and the combat fitness test was not was not just so I could say, hey, look at me, look what I did. It was it was the other way around. It was, I, I, I didn't have any interest in continuing service unless I could meet the standard, right? That was my viewpoint. I wasn't going to continue to wear the uniform if I couldn't meet the standard. And so because service has been such, a, I mean, it's the only thing I've done since I was 17, you know, since, since it was such a critical part of my life and who I am, it was essential, right? The ability to continue service was essential to me and, and my mental well-being and, and my recovery, right? And, and therefore, if I wanted to continue to serve, I had to pass those tests. And so it became a motivation in and of itself in my recovery that, you know, hey, if I want to keep doing this, if I want to continue to serve, I'm going to have to do whatever it takes to pass those damn PT tests. And, and that was my motivation. Been, been snowshoeing, been hiking at, you know, 9,000 feet. I did the Army 10 miler in 2017. And uh, as I tell everyone, a, a blistering two hours and 14 minutes. But, but that, that physical rehabilitation has been a journey and it's been powered, if you will, by, by really a lot of leg training, a lot of leg strength training. So in your career, you were a commander before this experience in Afghanistan and after. Did your perspective of the military health system change or, or what, what was different or was it the same? What I realized being a patient, and so you're right, I'd, I'd visited soldiers in hospitals numerous times, some, some in home station, you know, too many, you know, in, in combat theater hospitals. And, it, and always impressed, always walked away being impressed with the medical professionals you know, as a commander. But yeah, it, it, when, you, when you go through as a patient, it completely changed my perspective. And, and what I realized and what you see firsthand, skill is there, right? But what, what you see as a patient is just the incredible compassion and sense of caring. You don't necessarily, when you're gonna, going into a hospital kind of in and out, you kind of intuitively or, you know, academically kind of know that, yeah, okay, these people care. 
but you don't really feel it until you're there as a patient and you're there 24 seven day in and day out, especially from the nurses and my hats off to the nurses. The skill of the doctors is unmatched, but it's the nurses that are with you in the middle of the night, helping you do all kinds of things when there's, when no one else is there, right? And that's a calling. You can't do that. That's not a nine to five job. That's a calling. And that's what I've learned to appreciate from my time in the hospital and as a patient. It's a real calling for doctors and nurses and medics and, and just the level of compassion and caring that they pour forth, right, above and beyond the, the scale of what they do medically. It's just the caring and compassion. I was really amazed with. The, the other thing I realized and is just the impact on families, my, my own included. You don't necessarily see, again, when you're as a commander and you're visiting in and out, you don't necessarily see that. But when you're in the hospital for three months and you see other wounded, wounded warriors there, and you see them there with their families. And so I told you about some of those soldiers that have been there for 15 to 18 months, where their families have been there for the same amount of time. And, and you see some families, it's an incredible amount of stress for all sorts of different reasons, right? Some families can endure it. And, and unfortunately, you see some families where it causes ruptures, very tragic. It was difficult for my own family as well. You know, my, my children, they came to Walter Reed. They were there for three months. <clears throat> uh, when I was wounded, it was, it was the second day of school. So when they came to Walter Reed, they basically, their, their school year was interrupted. And again, they didn't know either, just like I didn't know how long I was going to be there. They didn't know when they were going to get back to go back to school, if they were going to go back to school, if they were going to make it through their through the, the their school year, or if they were going to have to be held back a year and repeat. Incredibly challenging for my, for my children. And so, you know, it was a credit to them that they were all able to eventually kind of do what they needed to do and, and graduate their respective grades for that 2012-2013 year between three months at Walter Reed and two months at Center for the Intrepid. And so I saw that as well. That's kind of above and beyond the question you asked about, about the medical profession, but, but I just saw the impact on families as well uh, that you don't necessarily see you know, when you're, you're just making those commander visits. So some of the listeners to our podcast are, are military physicians. And with your perspective being a line commander, they don't get to hear exactly what your expectations are or, or what the expectation is when they serve in roles such as battalion surgeon, brigade surgeon, division surgeon. What advice would you give to military physicians who are taking on that role? What is the expectation from that commander? So two things. One is, first and foremost, you got to be expert proficiency at their weapon system. And so that was my view as a brigade commander for everyone in the brigade, right? And so, but everyone's weapon system is different. So for the infantryman, the weapon system is a, is a rifle or a machine gun or a, or a mortar. You gotta be expert proficient. And so there's the basic minimum standard you gotta meet. And that's kind of, you know, you go out to the range, you gotta qualify, you know, 23 out of 40 is the minimum rifle qualification, right? That's minimum level. That's not good enough. You gotta, you gotta do that. And then you gotta do all these other things to be efficient with that weapon, right? You got to be able to shoot at night. You got to be able to shoot known distance. You got to be able to shoot from different positions. You got to be able to shoot with all your stuff on. And while you're doing individual movement techniques and your heart rate is upright and you're, and you're shooting around corners, that's proficiency. But that's above and beyond that 23 out of 40. It's the same thing for, for the medical team. Doesn't matter if you're, whether it's combat lifesaver, medic, physician's assistant, surgeon, and everything in between, right? They've got to be proficient, not just minimum standard, but they got to be expert proficient at their weapon system, uh, which is which is rendering life-saving aid under combat conditions. And so the second thing is they gotta just they gotta be soldiers like everybody else, particularly, you know, brigade level and below, those medical personnel from the line medic on up, you know, I mean they are enduring the same combat 
conditions and physical challenges that that the that the rifleman is right. I would even argue the line medics. When you see the aid rucks that they carry. They're, you know their load is as heavy as a rifleman, so they've got to be as physically tough and as physically strong I and mean, meet all the other soldier standards that any other combat soldier has to meet. So you got to be a soldier first, and then they got to be an expert. Their weapon system, you know, in this case, you know, being able to render life-saving aid. The other thing I would offer, challenging yourself to continue to be as empathetic as possible about the unknown. No one expects doctors and nurses to give answers when they can't, when, but just being empathetic and, and acknowledging that challenge of the unknown that the patient and his family are going going through, I think is important. And then just being open to family. So my wife, you know, she was my, you know, I tell everyone, she was my primary care provider because the teams of doctors rotate. And so you've got different folks that are always coming in. She was the one central repository or central clearinghouse that heard everything. I might have heard it, but I was under narcotics. I was either in pain or or high or both. So I didn't I didn't process it very well. She heard everything. She was, she was able to assimilate everything that was coming from the doctors and the nurses. She also knew me best, right? And so she was able to assimilate all that together and in some cases give some some good ideas or good recommendations and you know just being cognizant of that as well and you know integrating families into the into the overall diagnosis and process. That makes sense. So you'd mentioned that your children had to be uprooted to meet you at Walter Reed. How did you find that they were able to reintegrate themselves back into their normal lives? I don't know. My my kids are just incredible. I, I give them that. I give them credit for just being incredible kids, and, uh, and they're incredibly resilient. I think part of it may have been just the fact that none of my children have, have ever lived in one place more than two years. And so, you know, we're always moving. And so they've become incredibly resilient and, and able to, you know, adapt to new surroundings, adapt to new people and new situations. And I think that may have helped. You know, my son had to go to college first time in his life where he was where he was ever in one place for four years. You know, he had to he had to go to college to do that. So I think that kind of resiliency that they had developed just from us living in so many different places, I think helped. And then the one constant that my kids have is our family, right? So even though we were in a different location. Even though they weren't in school, we were all together, right? So they had their family. The credit to that, to doing that, was really my wife. You know, she kept us together as a family. I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I was in a bed, and, and so she took that on. And my wife kept our family together, and that I think that constant with everything else swirling around my kids, in my kids' lives, my wife's ability to keep our family constant. If you had one message that you could convey to our listeners about military medicine, what would it be? On the battlefield in trauma situations, it works and there's there's none better. And I'm a testament to that. Uh, at every step of the way, again, from point of injury to, to the highest level of care and everything in between, uh, it works and there's nowhere better. We've really enjoyed the privilege to speak with Major General Daniel Walreth on War Docs. Sir, thank you so much for your sharing your experiences and insights with us. And thank you for your service and best wishes for retirement. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. 
you like war stories and medical drama, War Docs has you covered. Spread the word.